Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with the people of God. And uh, I am excited about this series. And um, for many of you, it may wind up being a review, but that's okay. The writer of the book of Hebrews said we ought to give the more earnest heed to those things that we've heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip. And uh, I'm thankful for this opportunity. I do consider it a great privilege to be able to share the word of the Lord. It is, I will be honest, it is one of the great joys of my life. It always seems like a much better idea about a week ago when pastor asks. Then the closer you get, the less of a good idea it seems. But we'll be all right in 45 minutes or so. Amen? Amen. Why don't... Before you're seated, why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, and what I want to do is just read this passage, and then over the next, tonight and the next two Wednesday nights, I'd like for us to just take a look at this very familiar story. If you've, um, if you've been around church, if you were privileged to go to Sunday school, you heard it from a child. And you've probably heard it preached quite a bit too. But it's a beautiful thing about the word of the Lord. It just never gets old. It's always alive and there's always something there for us. So I want to read this passage tonight and then we'll kind of introduce what what we hope to do the next couple of weeks. Amen. Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, And unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. Barbecues in the Bible, folks. Don't be boiling that meat. His head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof, and you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire, and thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. 
This day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Amen. And I won't ask you to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes and says, Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Before you're seated tonight, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer just to ask him to be with us tonight. Let his spirit rest upon our hearts and minds as we share the word of the Lord tonight. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to delve into your word. We thank you so much for preserving this treasure for us. We ask tonight, Lord, that you would help our minds and help our hearts to receive what you have for us. Let it become an everlasting testimony and a memorial in our own lives, Lord, for what you have done for us. We pray that you would help us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing through that lengthy reading. You know, the the Bible is a, it's like a tapestry. It's like a a great weaving, a rug, or a, a great cloth that has been woven. Somebody said, it's, um, there's all this intricate detail. When you stand back, there are great themes that you see in Scripture. But then when you draw close and you draw near, there is great and exquisite detail in what is woven into the fabric of Scripture. And I don't know if it was original with him, but Brother Tenney said, you know, if you pull on a thread in one place, you're going to see a wrinkle in some place you didn't expect it. And he said, if you, if you tug on the lamb over in Genesis, you're liable to see a pucker way over in Revelation. And there are other great themes in the scripture that you can, you can do that with. What I hope to do over the next couple of weeks is for us to kind of play with a few of these threads and tug on them a little bit and see where the wrinkles show up. Because I believe this is such a central story in the history of Israel, and Paul would refer to it so explicitly in 1 Corinthians. It is an important story, even for us Gentiles who have been grafted in. It is a central part of our story, our redemption, where we have come from. And so what I would like to do, I know it's probably no great leap um, for those of you that have been around for a while. You understand the the typology and the symbolism between the Passover lamb and what Christ did at Calvary. But I would like for us to just kind of look at that in a little more detail and maybe there will be some other facets of the gem that uh, sparkle a little bit for us. Amen. The Bible is, of course, I mean, I don't know anything you say seems um, faint praise for the word of God. It is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it seems that this idea and this understanding of the Bible being alive If you just hear that, maybe conceptually that doesn't make sense to you. But as you begin to explore and you consume the word for yourself, you you see that living aspect of the word of God. And how it seems to, the spirit seems to tailor make the scripture for the situation that you're in. Have you ever had that experience? You read a certain passage 
dozens of times throughout your life, but then you're going through something and the Lord shines a light on it in a different way and it just fits and it's strength and it's peace and it's nourishment and it's all the things that you need. But when you look at the scripture, the Bible introduces us in the very first verse to God and in the very first verses to creation. And he begins to explain how he created everything and then speaks all of these things into existence. But then he forms man from the dust of the earth. And Paul would say, we're his workmanship. It was a little bit different when it came to creating man because he was creating us in his image. And there was more than just a spoken word. There was some effort. There was some forming that went into it. And when he had formed man from the dust of the earth, he breathed into him. There was a two-step process. There was the manual aspect, if we can say that about God, of actually forming and shaping man. But the second step, he breathed into him and man became a living soul. Made in the image of God. And uh, if you read the scripture and you do maybe a little conjecture... God had all of this grand creation in the heavens, and then he had created the earth, but there was, in all of his creation, there was none that was like unto him. And so there was uh, maybe, shall we say, a lack of communion, a lack of fellowship. There was, everything in creation was lower than God, and he couldn't He couldn't fellowship. He couldn't have the communion that he desired to have. And I think, if you'll allow me conjecture, I think that's why he created man was for that fellowship and for that communion. He created him in his image. And as you see this story develop on the first few pages of scripture, you see that that is indeed what happened. God came and communed with man and he would do this regularly in the cool of the day. He gave He gave man woman so that he would have a companion. He would have a help that was appropriate for him. He had somebody to go through life with. And uh, the Lord put them in this great garden where everything was perfect and there was only one requirement. That you can eat of anything that's in the garden, but that one tree that's in the middle of the garden, that one you shall not eat. And you all know the story, how that the tempter came and questioned the word of God, hath God said. Most of our enemy's temptations start with him casting doubt on what the Lord has said. If he can cast aspersions against the word of God, he's got us on the run from the very beginning. You know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed. They broke the one commandment. Um, It's kind of an interesting thing to me in the beginning when man was made in the image of God, communing with God, there was only one rule. (laughs) Then then eventually there were 10 rules. Then the Pharisees made a thousand other rules about the 10 rules. And now when they pass a single law in Congress, you can't even read it all. It's so many pages. You can't, the further we get away from God, the more rules there are and the less holiness there is. Because holiness comes from the spirit of God. And this is actually in this creation story. There's so much what we see. We see we're introduced to God. We're introduced to holiness. What it means to be like God. We're introduced to sin. What happens when we 
disobey. What does it mean to sin? It means we disobeyed God. What's the, what's the consequence of sin? The consequence of sin is separation from God. Isaiah even explicitly says that Isaiah 59, he says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Not only is it a true thing if you're in the garden, but it's a principle for life. When you live sinfully, you are separated from God. And it is your, it is your sin that keeps you separated from God. He's holy. He's without sin. And we see, I don't know what, the first five pages of the book, we have an unresolvable conflict. We have a holy God who cannot sin. And we have sinful man that had been created for the purpose of fellowship and communion. And we have a sinful man that cannot be made holy cannot be in the presence of God. And it's like, well, what is the rest of the book about? That's the end of the story, right? Well, the rest of the book is God's attempt to reconcile and to save that relationship for which he had created us. The whole rest of the book is God's working and planning and moving and Working his plan to restore that one relationship that Adam and Eve broke in one moment of time. We sometimes lose sight of how impactful our individual actions are. And not recognizing that sometimes these things are, well, most of the time, irreversible. We make decisions. We cause hurt. We cause pain. We can repent, we can receive forgiveness, but those that we've wronged, many times, we can't make it right. We can't fix it. And this is where Adam and Eve found themselves. The Lord came and they were ashamed because they had disobeyed and they had gotten knowledge they were never intended to have. And of course, the Lord knew what was going on. And so he began, he made a covering for them out of animal skins And then he removed them from the garden. Their sins, their iniquities separated them from the Lord. As God began to work, and there's story after story, but the big themes tonight, God moved on a man named Abraham. Because God had a plan for how he was going to restore this relationship. And... It, of course, was based on the life, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And lest you think that God was caught by surprise by what happened in the garden, I would remind you that the New Testament writer said he was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lord knew that man was going to fall short. And he knew what was going to be required. He knew what it was going to take to restore and to redeem and to do all of those things. And even knowing all of that, he went forward with the plan anyway. He knew there was rejection that was coming. He knew there was sin that was coming. But he also knew that what would happen at the end would be worth it all. And so the Lord begins to work and he begins to move. And he moved on this man, Abraham. And he chose Abraham to be his chosen people it's amazing if you just look at this and you think who in the world is abraham he's just a guy 
living in the middle of idolatry and polytheism and he's done nothing special and God just chose him. He saw something, he had his reasons. He told Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. Here's a man, what, 70, 75 years old, no children. And the Lord says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And uh, you know the story of how God moved on Abraham and that actually did happen. There's so much that God, what God had in mind with the people of Abraham, with the children of Abraham, was that he needed a people that he could reveal himself to and they would become, was his goal, was for them to become teachers. They would understand who God was and they would share that knowledge with the world. Now most of us are familiar with the, <clears throat> the verse in Peter that says you're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people who would show forth the praises of him. It's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know that that verse is a quotation of an Old Testament verse? That in Exodus, the Lord said, it is my purpose to turn you and to use you as a nation of priests. The Lord wanted to reveal himself through the nation of Israel and they were to become priests. <coughs> and, and so what was... This was the reason why God had moved on Abraham was so that they could be, well, okay, Paul says it like this in Galatians. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It is as though we needed an object lesson. And so the Lord started to reveal his nature. And the way he revealed his nature was through the law. God is holy. So he says, if you're going to understand holiness, you have to understand my nature. And so he begins to kind of dole this out and he, he gives the Ten Commandments, right? He's, he's revealing himself. He's revealing his nature. And Paul said the law was our schoolmaster. He's, the, the law was teaching us. It was our homework. It was our study to make us understand we, so that we would recognize Christ when he came. I think there's two, uh, there's two edges to that schoolmaster business. One is... It's an object lesson. The law was pointing us to, in a physical way, what Christ would be for us spiritually. But the second thing is, as God reveals his nature, we become more and more aware of our inability to live up to it. You ever stop to think about it? The Ten Commandments are pretty simple. Ten simple rules. And if everybody could live by... Even the five or six that have to do with our personal interaction with each other, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't take your neighbor's wife. You know, if you could just live by a few simple rules, don't kill anybody, the world would be a pretty good place. We can't do it. Simple, but we can't do it. The law was our schoolmaster to say, you need a savior. You need a Messiah. You need someone to transform you and to change you. And so this is what... God was teaching through the life of Abraham and all of his people and his children. One of the themes that gets woven in throughout all of this is the idea that the wages of sin, as Paul would say in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. You think of back, go back to the garden, the tree of life. God is the source of all life. They chose a different path. It brought separation from life. What happens when you get separated from life? You die. 
Jesus told them, in the day that you eat of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And being separated from God removes us from the source of life. And so, some way, in some manner, the penalty for sin is death. So how does that penalty ever get paid? Because I've sinned, so I deserve to die. You've sinned, you deserve to die. We've all sinned. We're all going to pay the price for our own. There's nobody, there's nobody to bail us out. There's nobody to pay the penalty for us. And so the imagery that was used over and over again is this imagery of sacrifice and of there being some sort of a substitution to take the place of me for my sin. And we see this, we see this over and over again through the scripture, but one of the most notable instances is when God is dealing with Abraham and he has told him that he's going to make him a mighty nation. He's an old man. He doesn't have any kids yet. Finally, after much ado and mistakes and one thing and another, Abraham does have a child. And then God says, tell you what, go put him on the altar. Wait a minute. We just went through all of this. Like, why, you know, if you're going to do this, why, why have you been tormenting me for the last 20 years, right? And so Genesis 22 came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, behold, here I am. He said, take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee to the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. There's no gap between verse 2 and verse 3. I, I don't know. For me, it would have been a gap. But Abraham rose up early in the morning. It doesn't say it was the next morning. Maybe it took a while. I suspect he didn't tell Sarah, though. Um, rose up early in the morning, saddled his animal, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he claved the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose up and went into the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto the young men, those that were with him, Abide you here with the animal, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Incidentally, the first occurrence of the word worship in the King James Bible. You cannot separate worship from obedience. Now the temptation is to say, and I've mentioned this before, that Worship and sacrifice are linked together. But the reality is, it's not just any sacrifice, it's obedience. And obedience is tested a lot of times in sacrifice. If, if pastor said, hey, this is enough, let's all go have ice cream, we could probably all be obedient. It'd be very easy. We're all about all of that. But obedience gets tested when the authority says you need to do something that you don't want to do. And Abraham said... The boy and I, we're going to go yonder to worship. Now, I don't know why the Lord asked this. Because, you know, there's one principle, again, that's woven all through scriptures that we're created in the image of God. And, and God never would have required human sacrifice or anything like that. The, the, the laws were, uh, by and large, not punitive or damaging or defacing. And you know, anything that you see in the scripture don't make marks, don't make cuttings in your flesh, all of this sort of thing. There's this respect for the image of God. 
And yet here is God telling Abraham, go sacrifice your promised son, the one I promised you, the one I gave you miraculously. Now go and sacrifice him. I don't know why. It was the practice of many of the nations around them. Perhaps God was saying, I want to see if you love me as much as they love their non-gods. I want to see how committed you are. And if you read on down through the scripture, it seems like the Lord does learn something. Because after the whole thing is over and, and Isaac is still alive, it seems like the Lord says, okay. Because he says, now I know. Now I know that you will not withhold anything from me. So it was a test, a temptation, if you will, for, for Abraham. But and in the moment, very difficult. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac, and they went both of them together up the mountainside. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? (laughs) Kids have a way, you know, cut right to it. I see everything here for a sacrifice, but the lamb. What's going on? And really, when you get down to it, that question, more than any other, characterizes the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? That's the question. There were sacrifices aplenty in the Old Testament. There was never want for an altar. There was never want for wood. But there was a never-ending search for a lamb. Because all of the lambs that they had access to were insufficient for the purpose that was intended. All they were doing, I think that it is inappropriate to speak of the Old Testament just as law, and the New Testament just as grace, without recognizing some nuance and some subtlety, there was some grace in the Old Testament. Because those sins of men got rolled away because of their obedience or rolled forward because of their obedience and their faithfulness, and God graciously met with them and allowed them to experience his presence, that priest went into the Holy of Holies. He was not holy, but because of a sacrifice of a lamb, God just pulled back the curtain a little bit and let him get a glimpse and experience the presence of God. And this was the reason why there was a never-ending search for the lamb because there was no, uh, the lamb was never accomplishing anything. Hebrews 10, he says, if those sacrifices had accomplished what they were intended to accomplish, then they would have ceased to have been offered. But they weren't. They did not seize. They were offered continually, day after day. So Abraham, Isaac says, where is the lamb? And Abraham, as you well know, responds in a, what I think is a prophetic way. He says, my God, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. The answer was satisfactory. If you think about that answer, God will provide himself a lamb. I'm sure Isaac thought God will provide a lamb for himself. We're going to find the lamb when we get up there. He had no idea the number was on his back, right? But I'm sure he thought, oh, okay, God is going to provide a lamb for himself. But the phrase lends itself just as much to Abraham 
prophesying that God would provide himself as a lamb. And this is the beauty when you study that Old Testament tabernacle and all of that is that Christ fulfilled all of those parts and pieces. He was the priest and he was the altar and he was the lamb and he's blood and he was the mercy seat and he's he's the cherubim and he's the presence between the cherubim and every he's all of it he's the curtains he's the whole he's the whole deal and this is where the question of the old testament where is the lamb really is characterized there if you start to think about all of the sacrifices that were offered in the old testament now before you know eventually abraham had uh, his Children, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob's sons, they endured a great famine. They went down to Egypt. They fell into slavery. And then our text tonight was part of their deliverance from Egypt, from slavery, where they had gone and what had been salvation to them enslaved them and they were brought out by the miracle and miraculous power of God. And the Passover was a key part of that. You will also remember that just after that, that the Lord is when the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments and he gave them the tabernacle plan. Again, God is not surprised. He gave the Ten Commandments, but he knew those would be broken. So he said, here's what you do when you break these. You've got the tabernacle plan. So we give you both of these at the same time because you're going to need them. And once the tabernacle plan was instituted, just start think about the number of sacrifices that were made. Prior to that, okay, there was the ram in the garden. There was Noah after the flood. He offered sacrifices. Abraham offered sacrifices. Job apparently offered sacrifices, probably a contemporary of Abraham. But this was, it was just kind of as men felt led by the Spirit. But then once the tabernacle was implemented, there was a regular, shall we say, service of offering unto the Lord. And if you think about that, Every morning and every evening offering these sacrifices. And then there were the special occasions. There were the annual feasts. There were the special occasions that worked their way in from time to time. And you start to go back and try to add up over the hundreds of years covered of the Old Testament. Even the times where the uh, portable tabernacle or the temple was uh, in service. And when sacrifices were being offered. It starts to become a pretty large mountain of sacrificial animals that were offered. And it really all points back to this Passover story where the Lord said, this is going to be, this is the beginning of months for you. This is the, this is really what it's all about. I'm bringing you out of Egypt. And then the sacrifices were implemented as part of service in the tabernacle. And then you think about Throughout Israel's history, they would fall away. And then a king would come back and restore. Asa would come back and he restored religion back in Israel. And he would offer thousands of animals for sacrifices. Hezekiah restored religion. He offered thousands of animals. Solomon is famous. He entreated the Lord at Gibeon. He offered all of these lambs. But even at his coronation, there were large sums of animals and large amounts of blood that were shed at uh, the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple, they went overboard, 10,000 animals or something. It's just incredible, the number of sacrifices and things that they offered unto the Lord. But yet it was all 
fruitless in one respect. It was worship. It was obedience. The Lord was pleased with it, but it did nothing for the sin problem. It did nothing for the sin problem. And really, if you go back and Paul is the one, again, who makes the connection. Christ is our Passover. What was the Passover? The Passover was we are enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh will not let us go. And, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who sent you? And he says, Jehovah. And Pharaoh mockingly says, well, I don't even know Jehovah. What he was saying was, we have all of these gods in Egypt. We have a pantheon. We have all of these gods, but we don't know Jehovah. <laughs> so the Lord said, well, let me, let me introduce myself. And that's where the plagues come from. As the Lord begins to show his might. He, you know, sometimes we go through difficult things in life. And we wonder, why does life have to be so hard? Why does life have to be so difficult? The Lord told Moses, he said, I'm going to put Pharaoh in place and I'm going to harden his heart. And I want you to go to him and demand that he lets my people go, but he will not by any means let them go. Oh, thank you, Lord. Setting me up for failure. Really appreciate that. You know what the Lord said? The Lord said, I'm setting him up. And I'm putting him in the way so that I can show my glory. There's sometimes the Lord just lets us go through really difficult things so he can show off a little bit. He said, Pharaoh says he doesn't know Jehovah. He will know Jehovah by the time I'm finished. By the time I get finished with blood and flies and lice and hail and all kinds of pestilences. And he's going to know who I am. The Lord said, I will get my glory. That's another thing is that I've learned is that, you know, when the Lord speaks, we might as well just go ahead and bow down and repent now and get it all out of the way and get it over with. Because it's not going to get any better. It goes downhill. So as this is all happening at the end, it builds up. And most, the Lord says to Moses, okay, this is the moment. And he says, I'm going to take out the firstborn because see, there's something about the firstborn, the pride and joy, the sign of strength, child of your youth. And the Lord says, I'm going to show Pharaoh that I'm the giver of life. And the way I'm going to demonstrate that is I'm going to take life. I'm going to go through the land and I'm going to take the firstborn, not only of every household, but of every animal. I'm taking every firstborn. But he said, if you will follow my instruction and you will put the blood on your doorpost, I will pass over you. This is, of course, very obviously the symbolism and the type of sin. Sin enslaves us. It steals our strength. It forces us to do things that we would never want to do. Have you ever noticed that? Sin is irrational. It makes no sense. And you can look at people who are trapped in sin and say, why would they ever do that? That's because sin does not appeal to the rational mind. If, this, if sin appealed only to the mind, only the smart people would be saved. We would still all be lost. But it, sin appeals to the base nature. And there's something about us that is just drawn to sin. And it doesn't matter. You can explain it. It's perfectly logical why you should not do that. And then we do it. 
It's destructive. But the Lord provided a way out of Egypt. And that way was this Passover lamb. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he makes the, you know the story, there was the Passover, all the firstborn were killed, they escaped that night, they left, Pharaoh ejected them, he pushed them out, he said, go away, I'm tired of fighting with Jehovah. But of course, just like all the other plagues, he had second thoughts. After he realized I've lost my entire economy, all of my labor force, I have just ejected into the desert. So he went after them. And they came to the Red Sea, and the Lord opened it up, and he allowed the children of Israel to go through, and then it closed in on the Egyptian army and uh, destroyed the army. Paul says, notice this, all our fathers were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. What's he talking about? He says, the cloud... There was a cloud that was over them that led them and told them where to go. And when they walked through the Red Sea, there were the walls of water on either side. Paul says this is a type of baptism. They were covered by water. They walked through the water. Well, if you back up one step, they had put the blood on their doorpost, the blood of the Passover lamb. They went through that blood to get out of the house. Then they went through the water at the Red Sea and the Lord led them. It's a perfect picture of repentance leaving Egypt behind and being baptized in the sea and in the cloud. There's a spiritual aspect to it. So Paul makes this very clear connection between what Christ did at Calvary and the Passover of the Old Testament. Not really um, revelatory, I understand. But here's the point that I want to make tonight in closing. When you think about and you look at all of the different sacrifices down through The Old Testament. In the garden, it was for it was for one person, and uh, it was a covering. When it was Moriah and when it was Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, it was a substitute. At Passover, it became their path out of sin, and on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, it was always God rolling their sin forward. It was atoning. It was covering for sin. Think about this. In the garden, the lamb or the ram that was killed, there was one for each of them. It was for one person. But the longer you go in scripture, the broader it gets. The broader the sacrifice of the lamb gets. At Passover, it was one lamb for the family. And on the Day of Atonement, there was one lamb for the entire nation. But John answers Paul's, or rather Isaac's question. Isaac asks, where is the lamb? And that's characterizing the whole Old Testament. Just search for any lamb we can get our hands on. It's going to just do the temporary fix. It's just going to take care of it. But when John was baptizing, he looked up and he saw Jesus coming the next day. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In Eden, it was for one person. At Passover, it was one family. On the Day of Atonement, it was for the whole nation. But when Jesus came, it was for the whole world. Amen? Hallelujah. Just as that Passover lamb was intended to take them out of Egypt and into God's promises, so Jesus, our Passover, sacrificed for us For the purpose of giving us victory over sin. 
ever think about that verse? And maybe I've mentioned this before. When they got to the Red Sea, they were scared to death. They didn't know what to do. And the Lord said, it's okay. The Egyptians that you see today, you shall see no more again forever. There's something that happens in the waters of baptism that separates us from our old past. And there is a victory that is won in baptism. And how do we baptize? We baptize in Jesus' name because Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us and he gives us the power to overcome. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me tonight? Over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is look in a little more detail at some various aspects that are in Exodus chapter 12. And we want to pull on those strings a little bit, see where they lead us. There are some characteristics of Passover that I think the Lord will speak to us clearly in our own lives, give us strength and encouragement, and prepare us for this season. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the Lord that He came, but not just that He came, and not just that He lived and that He did miracles, but that He went to Calvary for me. It's by His death, His burial, and I'm thankful for His resurrection. Amen? He has lifted us. And given us strength. Why don't we offer thanks to the Lord tonight? Lord, we're so grateful. We're so thankful for what you have done. Your hand has been at work in our lives. Not only in our lives, Lord, but throughout all of human history that you have been weaving your tapestry and you've been working and you have come and brought us to this hour when we can receive what we need in our own lives. Victory over sin, transformation and the power of the Holy Ghost. So grateful, Lord, that your hand has been at work. And from the very beginning, Lord, you knew what you would do. Hallelujah. And you have declared the end from the very beginning. We're thankful for it tonight. Lord, we ask that you have your way in our hearts and in our lives. Amen and amen. Amen. Let's offer thanks to the Lord. Give you glory and honor, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. We will see you on Sunday and we'll have a great time in the Lord. Amen.